Hello and welcome to Kickout 299. I'm Alicia. My pronouns are she, her. In case you did not see our announcement on Twitter, Rachel will be taking a break for the next several weeks to job search and address some things in their personal life. We'll miss them while they take some time for themselves, but in lieu of regularly scheduled content, I will be joined on the next several episodes by familiar voices to those of you who have been listening to Kick Out or Talking Triple Crown for a minute. So thank you to those folks for stepping in to help and to all of you once again for being patient and supportive during a very challenging year for both Rachel and I. Today, I am joined by my friend and author, Sarah Kerchak, to discuss a facet or style of professional wrestling very close to our hearts. I'm very lucky and delighted to be joined by her. Sarah, would you mind introducing yourself for those less familiar with you and your work? And could you let everyone know where they can purchase your books as well? All right. Yeah. Thanks for having me again. I always love being on this podcast. My name is Sarah Kerchak. She, her, um, I have now the author of two books. The first one is called a memoir but it's more a collection of essays called I overcame my autism and all I got was this lousy anxiety disorder and my new book is work it out a mood boosting exercise guide for people who just want to lie down um which is basically what it says on the tin it is for any neurodivergent depressed or anxious people who have been let down by the gym system who want to move their bodies for themselves just to feel a little better I do not promise to cure you I do not promise to give you abs I just want you to feel slightly less like shit um and that's what the book can do uh both books also have a number of references to pro wrestling so that's how we can keep it on topic um and you can also find me on twitter and instagram at fodder figure f-o-d-d-e-r figure Awesome. And there's also a release party for Sarah's book, Work It Out. You can find that too by going onto Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. But don't skip that. We talk extensively about the book. And you can also hear all of the pro wrestling references that Sarah makes in that book as well. So it's very much worth uh, going back and checking out. I also want to say off the top of this episode, our approach to this one is technically not to do a whole lot of teaching, although I looked at my outline this morning and saw that I had hit eight pages and I was like, wow, it's funny. I always think I'm not going to teach and yet I somehow managed to do that, but we're not trying to do a lot of teaching today. And we have not chosen, I think, what I would consider super traditional shoot wrestling matches. We're not covering any of Maeda and Takata's matches today. So I hope people aren't uh, super disappointed, but we're just trying to hang out and talk about the wrestling we love. And we hope that you enjoy and take something away from this episode. Hopefully you learn something. Um, I also want to mention that Kickout does have an episode from July 2022 on Antonio Inoki and Muhammad Ali's famous 1976 fight that really gave way to contemporary or organized mixed martial arts. Pancrase, UFC, and eventually Pride in the 1990s are all examples of MMA promotions born in part by that fight happening. So that episode gives you somewhat of a base for understanding the impact of Ali versus Anoki. But to expand on that time period and how we arrived at shoot-style pro wrestling, there was UWF, which was formed in Japan in 1984, and then had a few name changes and starts and stops before becoming known as UWFI. UWF was at the forefront of blending the realism of shoot fighting with professional wrestling and predated the start of Pancrase UFC and then, of course, Pride. UWF was originally formed when a group of New Japan wrestlers, including Russia Kimura, Akira Mieda, and Ryuma Go, left the promotion to form their own. But it was when people like Yoshiaki Fujiwara, Nobuhiko Takada, 
Satoru Sayama, who's the original Tiger Mask, and Kazuo Yamazaki joined them that the traditional pro wrestling style of the new promotion changed to incorporate more martial arts and amateur wrestling. And this is because people like Maeda, Sayama, and Takata, just to name a few of that bunch, were already trained martial artists and amateur wrestlers before they were professional wrestlers. So UWF, reborn UWF, UWFI, depending on when you're actually watching the promotion, um, they have a fascinating history. But all of this to say, they really coined that hybrid style. And we got Maeda's rings through this history, which began as a shoot-style pro-wrestling promotion, and then really leaned into being a pure mixed martial arts promotion as time wore on. There's plenty more examples of this. This is just kind of a snapshot of how we get the origins of shoot-style professional wrestling, um, more or less from that time period. Um, and this is to leave out like other things, other people, other figures we could talk about too. But that'll come up, I think, as I especially get into the beginnings of my match of origin. Um, so yeah, a little bit of history for you all. Sarah, do you think that I'm missing anything or any like historical figures of prominence um, right off the bat? No, I think we're good to go on an episode where you said we wouldn't be teaching. I think we've given enough of a background. And I'm going to say this, saying that you are the historian on this side. Um, my expertise in covering MMA culture comes more from covering predominantly American MMA, mostly UFC. Um, I was a writer for Vice's Fightland Vertical for years. So that's where I came in. Um <clears throat> And I think just one thing to note is that if you are someone who grew up with like Western WWE style wrestling, um, your concept of how like defined the line is between professional wrestling and shoot fighting is going to be very different than some of the more fluid blending that you're going to see in a lot of the Japanese promotions. Um, and I don't actually think it's necessarily that more fluid I think it's just more open about the fact like American mixed martial arts is in such denial about how much it owes to pro wrestling spectacle and just like how much the personalities and the promotion can cross over um, UFC in particular is just so obsessed with presenting this like realism and definitive nature to the point where I think that anytime you see a, like, a judge's decision that people don't agree with, they have a pure existential crisis from the fighters to the fans because they think it's supposed to be all real and they don't realize that perspective plays a role in it. So, I mean, there is a bit of showmanship in MMA, even under some of the techniques that you'll pick. And I'm going to bring that up a little bit more when I get into the Yukio Sakaguchi style of DDT fighting. So yeah, showmanship, the matches themselves, and even in terms of the crossover of who is good at what in terms of going to the UFC versus going to the WWE, there's a lot more of a bridge there that is just not acknowledged in any sort of English language based promotion. Um, so yeah, if that's what you grew up with, just be aware that it's going to be a different ride um, and just a totally different context than anything we're talking about today. A hundred percent. Those are all extraordinary points. And I'm going to again point to the episode we did on Ali versus Noki because you get that sense of how closely 
pro wrestling and MMA in American history are tied together, even through just going through the history to get to that fight. Um, so yeah, that, that comes up a ton. Um, and we've said this before on other episodes of this podcast, I believe, but UFC often does pro wrestling so much better than WWE does. Um, you can see that in very controversial figures like Conor McGregor, um, mm-hmm. all of his showmanship and the things that he does at press conferences, or at least he used to, I don't think he fights nearly as much as he used to anymore, at least. Um, but all of that is so much a pro wrestling persona. Um, UFC really exploits those moments and it's all under the veil of realism, um, mm-hmm. except that they are these very exaggerated moments that really actually just feel like pro wrestling. So these things are actually very closely related. You're completely correct. So all of that being said, I'm going to get into the match that I chose to talk about for this episode. I was meant to talk about two matches, but my full-time job is super demanding at this time of year, and I just did not have time to get to the second match, so I apologize. But I will mention which match I was going to cover um, as a second match in a bit. I am, however, very excited about the match I did choose to talk about today because it's one I've touched on before during Kickout's end-of-year episode in December 2022, and I've probably mentioned it on another episode, but I'm just forgetting when. At any rate, this match was part of my top five matches of 2022, but if you really pushed me, I would have said it was my favorite match of the year because I truly believe um, it is pitch-perfect professional wrestling. That being said, I am going to talk about Katsuhiko Nakajima versus Hideki Suzuki from April 8th, 2022 in Corican Hall from Pro Wrestling Noah's Real Overture 2022. Before I get into the match itself, I do want to speak specifically about Pro Wrestling Noah's relationship to shoot wrestling or shoot style wrestling and some of the history there because Noah's overall style, which has evolved into what it is today from its King's Road origins, is one of the things I love about the promotion the most and has undoubtedly drawn me to their wrestling. I wanted to give a particular quote off the top that I think sheds an interesting light on part of All Japan Pro Wrestling founder Giant Baba's teaching philosophies to that end. Um, I'm going to quote from Dr. Dr. Jonathan Foy's Gonbaru here, but Baba insisted that wrestlers learned how to work in a particular way. In a November 2020 interview with Slam Wrestling, former All Japan Pro Wrestling Geiko Kujin Richard Aslinger described how trainees in the All Japan Dojo were required to learn how to shoot fight in case they needed skills and to protect pro wrestling's image. He said, quote, the great Kabuki told me that all of us, meaning the AJPW trainees, would get taught how to shoot fight before we take our first bump. That's because kickboxers and other professionals kept coming up to challenge the wrestlers because they thought wrestling is or was fake. The veterans taught us how to shoot so that if those people ever tested us, we could prove them wrong. Clearly, wrestlers having that tangible shoot fight or martial arts experience was important for Giant Baba for one reason or another, and it was a focus of the training in the All Japan Dojo. Giant Baba's teachings and philosophies, of course, continued on in the Noah Dojo as well once Misawa left with the majority of the All Japan roster in 2000 as well. So I want to highlight some things that I find particularly interesting and important about Noah's Dojo and how they train their wrestlers. Yoshinari Ogawa, Tomon Honda, and Yoshihiro Takayama have all been NOAA trainers. Ogawa is still the head trainer of the dojo to this day, and he is a very gifted technical wrestler. He is often just described as a technician. Tomon Honda was an accomplished amateur wrestler who competed on a national level and in two Olympics. Takayama had his start in UWFI in 1992, although he did originally get accepted into UWF while he was still in college. He was just unable to start them because of a recurring shoulder injury. 
Takayama is also extremely well known for his forays into MMA, including his famous fight against Don Fry at Pride 21. So you can see there's a synergy between the people who are in charge at the NOAA Dojo and what they're training um, into those newer wrestlers. And while I think people are well aware of New Japan's history and how it intersects with MMA, particularly during the early 2000s, to put it mildly, I think it's interesting to point out that over in NOAA, Takashi Sugira, who learned Greco-Roman through his time in the Japan Self-Defense Forces and competed, but fell short of qualifying for three Olympics, also took MMA fights starting with Pride 21 in 2002, where he lost to Daniel Gracie. He only had four fights in all, his most notable fight after that being at Pride Bushi Part 4 in 2004, where he beat Giant Silva. But he was finished with MMA by about 2008. I find that interesting in the sense that Sugiro was technically actively competing in MMA while picking up all of Noah's junior titles. He didn't win the GHC Heavy until December 2009. According to what is translated online of Naomichi Marafuji's biography, Marafuji accompanied Sugira along with Takeshi Morishima to MMA gyms where Sugira was training. Marafuji had an amateur wrestling background from high school, so he didn't come into the All Japan Dojo cold either. But his original wrestling style was built around high-flying maneuvers and skills based on his early interest in Lucha Libre, but his style changed over time to account for injuries and the like. Today, he is so much more well-known for his grappling and mat-based wrestling. That is the Marafuji that I met when I became a fan of Perez. It was actually going back and starting to watch his older matches that I realized that was not his original style as intended. I also bring Marafuji up, you know, in accompanying Sugira because he was apparently told by the shoot fighters they were training with that he was quite good and could pursue MMA, but Noah was against Marafuji taking shoot fights during that time period. It was fine apparently for Sugira to do this, but not okay for their crown prince to risk injuring himself at the time. Um, so again, all this to say, there is a strong mix of backgrounds in shoot fighting and shoot style professional wrestling in Noah's Dojo historically. And there are some interesting individual stories as well when you really start to dig into, especially that early 2000s time period. I also want to highlight some of the stories of Noah wrestlers who came into the dojo without a tangible mixed martial arts or amateur wrestling background. This allows me to mention again that even though Kenta is often called a kickboxer, he did not know kickboxing before he became a professional wrestler. He was a baseball player and he played that throughout his high school days. His love of professional wrestling and belief him and Kenta Kobashi were a bit faded did lead him to All Japan's first public tryout, which he passed in August 1999, but he didn't have that tangible mixed martial arts or amateur wrestling experience. Kenta learned in the All Japan and then Noah Dojo, so he really is a product of Baba's training philosophies and then the tangible hands-on training of his seniors. Takayama was a massive influence on him beyond his senpai in Kobashi. Kenta picked up kickboxing when he was already training because his kicks were something that made him stand out from his peers and he could use kickboxing to fine-tune what would end up becoming the style he has become so well known for. But Kenta also became a fantastic grappler. If you really watch his matches over time, you can see how skilled he is on the mat and how smooth and clean his transitions are. No one takes a back quite like Kenta can. It's really something stunning to watch. Of course, when he began taking more fights at heavyweight and needed a secondary finisher to the go to sleep, he added an omoplata to his arsenal, which we know as game over. 
I also love to talk about Go Shiyazaki because he was inspired to join Noah beyond just being a fan of Misawa because he heard Misawa say during a commercial, quote, anyone could become a pro wrestler. And while reading back issues of Shukan Perez, he came across an article where then Kenta Kobayashi, later Kenta, said he had no martial arts experience before being trained by the Noah Dojo, only years spent playing baseball. Shio played basketball in high school, so he really had a very similar experience to Kenta. Shiozaki today is not known for being a grappler. He's not a shoot-style guy by any means, but he is a total product of the Noah Dojo and that he has all the base-level skills of someone who was trained there. He has perfect instincts when he's taken to the mat because when you watch Shio, he is always working to get back on his feet knowing he is not a grappler and the skills are there. He works quickly and efficiently to get off his back, get on a hip, create space, and pop right back up. This is so exemplified when he is fighting people like Kaz Yuki Fujita, a former New Japan professional wrestler who has been in NOAA for a while now, but he is very well known for his time at MMA organizations like Pride, K1, Road FC, Ryzen, etc. When you go back and watch their fights, watch how Shiyazaki handles a scramble. That is the NOAA dojo training at work. Shiyazaki standing in the pocket with strikers is another story entirely. He's made that sort of a character note for himself. But when it comes to when he's taken to the ground, especially by someone like a Fujita, you can see the training immediately come into play for him. I've referenced uh, Kaz Fujita, but Noah has a pretty extensive history of working with mixed martial artists and shoot style professional wrestlers. Uh, Masakatsu Funaki has appeared for Noah for some time now. Kazushi Sakuraba is another, and I would say the vast majority of Noah wrestlers today cross-train with Sakuraba and Natural 9, another one of those important connections to understanding the training philosophies in the Noah Dojo today, which begins with the early history of the Noah Dojo. Just to name a few more, Hideki Sakin, uh, Kazunari Murakami, Daisuke Nakamura, Timothy Thatcher, like the list goes on and on. We just had a really good fight between Josh Barnett and Funaki. So this shoot style professional wrestling and that influence of actual mixed martial artists is very much a part of Noah's fabric today. The last things I want to reference are Keno's first reign as GHC national champion, um, which was him mostly destroying old shooters, including people like Sakuraba, Funaki, Murakami, etc. It was an incredible time. It really was a fun reign. And you should revisit those matches if you haven't in a while. But Keno was not trained in the Noah Dojo. He comes from a Jinoku Pro. But he started training Nippon Kempo from the age of three and went on to become the youngest Nippon Kempo champion in Japan. I believe he won the championship a total of three times. Um, and lastly, I have to take the opportunity to once again say that Jake Lee, our current GHD heavyweight champion, did not leave All Japan in 2011 to quote unquote pursue a career in MMA. He did eventually start training MMA with Power of Dreams under Kenichi Yamamoto as a hobbyist in order to fulfill his dream of trying something he had wanted to do from childhood, but hadn't been able to for a variety of reasons. You can go to Next Dream Part 1 if you want to hear me talk about this in great detail. He was, however, a competitive weightlifter through his college years, and today he is a blue belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu through Carpe Diem, which you can see has influenced his style as well. Before I get into the match I am meant to be talking about, I wanted to make a few notes about Katsuhiko Nakajima's background prior to professional wrestling. 
A lot is said about Katsuhiko becoming an accomplished fighter and then entering mixed martial arts and pro wrestling so young, but I think it's important to remember that he had a very difficult home life, which contributed to him pursuing fighting from that young of an age. There is an amazing 2017 Nikon Sports article for when he was GHC heavyweight champion for the first time, and he spoke quite candidly about this. His father left the family by the time he was five. He and his mother were very poor, and he was reliant on school lunches as a result. They lost electricity frequently at home. By the time he hit junior high, he was more concerned with making money than staying in school out of practical necessity. He had to take care of himself and his mother. He was an accomplished karateka, and I'm going to acknowledge here that I might not be saying that word correctly. I think I've heard three different pronunciations of that word, so bear with me. But he was an accomplished karateka from a very young age. And by his first year of junior high school, he won a national karate tournament sponsored by a specific organization affiliated with Kyokushin Kaikon, which is a very specific form of full contact karate. Uh, though I do believe that Katsuhiko does not consider himself a Kyokushin practitioner. Don't quote me on that yet. I'm still doing some digging, but I'm pretty sure he does not consider himself a practitioner of that exact form of karate. It's just the tournament that he found himself in at the time. Around that time, though, where he won the National Karate Tournament, he had the opportunity to speak to Akira Maeda, who offered him a spot in rings once he graduated from high school, but rings disbanded well before that could come to pass. He was scouted by Ricky Choshu and made his professional debut in a MMA match in Choshu's WJ at 15 years old in Cork and Hall. He lost to Tomohiro Ishii. From this point is where Katsu began making a name for himself in the professional wrestling world. And I think those of you have been listening to many episodes we put out this year alone, Diamond Ring, One Night Dream, um, even the bio I did for him in our Destiny review, you know he left WJ. He began working with Kensuke Sasaki and Akira Hokuto, and the rest is history as they say. I want to talk a bit about his opponent as well, who has a very interesting history. Hideki Suzuki was taught by the legendary Billy Robinson and Shigeo Miyato, who was a retired professional wrestler and catch wrestling instructor who also went by Yuko Miyato. Hideki joined UWF Snake Pit in 2008, which is where Miyato actually still teaches. As of 2018, that gym is known as CACC Snake Pit Japan. It's still a catch wrestling and kickboxing gym, but Hideki made his professional wrestling debut that year for Enoki Genome Federation, which was a professional wrestling and MMA promotion founded by Enoki in 2007. It's defunct as of 2019, but IGF was the promotion that Enoki left New Japan to form. After 2013, Hideki went freelance. He became really well known for his appearances with Zero One and BJW. His first significant NOAA matches occurred in 2019 and 2020. In 2021, he left Japan after he was lured away by WWE NXT. He was a coach there and he did become a performer for like a hot second, but then he got let go during a layoff and we've had him back in NOAA predominantly ever since, although he's been floating around more lately. This is Katsu and Hideki's second singles match, the one I'm going to talk about today. Their first being on February 16th, 2020. And both of these matches are fascinating in that they went to 30-minute draws. So we are waiting with bated breath um, on the rubber match, which we'll hopefully still get regardless of where Katsuhiko goes next. The singles match between them from April 2022 came about because Takashi Sugira and Hideki as Sugira-gun were GHD heavyweight champions and in a program with challengers Kongo, Keno, and Nakajima ahead of their title match, which was held on April 30th in Ryogoku Kogikigan. Keno got a pre-match singles against Sugira, which was great for those of us who are sickos about their lore. 
And we also got this tremendous pre-match singles between Katsu and Hideki. So to get into the match itself, Katsu in the beginning is immediately starting to throw kicks. They're sizing each other up. Katsu's kicks and swipes are all about maintaining this distance. So Hideki can't shoot in on his hips, which is what Hideki is looking for instantly. He wants to bring Katsu down to the mat. Katsu obviously wants to keep things standing. Katsuhiko has always been extremely well-rounded and gifted, but I actually did not think his jujitsu in particular really improved and became smoother, especially against other jujitsu practitioners or grapplers until around the pandemic. So this used to not be something I looked forward to specifically with him necessarily, but he rapidly improved so much during the pandemic. He, for kayfabe reasons doesn't take a lot of photos when he's training unless he's training alone i do privately think that he was training with uh, sakuraba and laughter nine um a lot so that's why we have seen such a dramatic improvement with this style of grappling with him that's just my sort of private thought since literally everyone in noah trains with sakuraba um so yeah that's what i think but yeah he, he improved quite literally so dramatically and it was very very obvious so yeah, they have this heated rope break and then Hideki does shoot in on Katsu's leg and Katsu sprawls and defends the takedown. It's actually a pretty good takedown defense. Um, Hideki has a hold of Katsu's arm though in a very precarious position. So he makes the attempt to take Hideki's back, doesn't go to plan. Hideki transitions to Katsu's back instead. Katsu defends and then he takes Hideki's back and gets both hooks in. He rides Hideki's back and he's slapping it in the head before working to get a choke in. So there's obviously a lot of disrespectful kind of back and forth him and Hideki have a certain energy together you really get that from the beginning Katsu can't capitalize though he actually struggles more than once to get his hooks really in with Hideki um, during this match Um, he ends up on his back keeping Hideki out of his guard with his legs Hideki tries to make what looks like a pass into side guard by gathering up Katsu's legs but Katsu is so quick he pushes his hand through Hideki's legs to swing his hips out and and that gives him the leverage he wants to get his leg up and over Hideki's head to reverse but he doesn't quite have it and Hideki defends by cradling his neck and leg Katsu doesn't give him side control though and they wind up where they started with Hideki on the outside of Katsu's guard. I love that even off his back, Katsuhiko is so dangerous and it was cool to see him try to create space, even with his hands just pushing against Hideki's hips as they fought to reset again. Hideki works to break Katsu's guard and in turn, Katsu drives his foot into Hideki's jaw, which Hideki just hates. Hideki gets real top heavy like he's going to stack Katsu and then drives this nasty forearm down that narrowly misses Katsu's face. Katsu defends by wrapping both arms around his neck and brings themselves chest to chest to eliminate the striking space between them and then makes a real effort of strength to shrimp his hips out and create the space he needs between their lower halves so he can stand up again. I love this style of match so much because I'm invested in the human chess game of it all. I like when it feels like someone can make one wrong move and that's going to cost them the fight it's as much mental as it is physical and that's what really drew me to mixed martial arts and then brazilian jiu-jitsu to begin with but also why shoot style pro wrestling tends to really catch my attention as well these matches to me are just exciting and thrilling because of this human chess element Katsu winds up staying on his back and Hideki gets side control. Hideki tries to apply pressure that forces Katsu's shoulders to the match. So there's a one count or two in there as a result. Katsu manages to get one leg over Hideki's neck and drag him down to what looks like a very painful leg scissors from the noise Hideki made. Katsu's able to shake Hideki's arm from around his neck and maintains that leg scissors, but Hideki reverses and forces Katsu to sit up with him. Katsu winds up on his back again, but they end up exchanging some holds till Katsu has Hideki in the leg scissors once again. 
They're forced to stand up after there's some more reversals and Katsu's able to get to the bottom rope. Hideki crushes one of Katsuhiko's hands and brings him back down to the mat with Katsuhiko immediately defending his guard again, this time with Hideki standing up. Hideki doesn't even need to break his guard as it turns out. He rushes in with a knee bar attempt that forces Katsu to defend from a very painful position. It looks almost like this four-leaf clover modification attempt at that point in the match. They stare each other down. It's like the most unhinged looking stare down ever, but they're just enjoying torturing each other at that point. They scramble. Katsuhiko is able to get some knees into Hideki and take his back. Um, Katsuhiko pays for all of this though because Hideki gets an arm um, and goes for a key lock. Katsu recovers and manages to end up in like this quasi full mount. Hideki isn't quite fully on his back. He's on a hip. It's not a great position for Katsuhiko. Um, Hideki bumps Katsuhiko forward which shifts all of Katsu's weight giving Hideki the chance to escape. That is such a very simple maneuver that you learn when you're like in your very like basic Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu classes. You just learn that you can actually just push someone with like your knee basically into their back that will literally force their weight forward and then you can escape it's the simplest thing in the world and yet it's incredibly effective and it's very effective here Katsu immediately takes his back again and he has trouble like I said before getting both his hooks in to maintain the position he's so smooth with the way that he can transition almost immediately from one thing to the next but he really struggles to get his hooks in to effectively take Hideki's back in order to put in a choke they stand up briefly. Hideki brings him back to the mat and traps him with a head scissors. Katsu bridges to reverse and then tries to drive his knees into Hideki's legs to get Hideki to release his head and neck. Once he's free, he keeps driving those knees into Hideki's legs, which is a pretty good strategy. The next several minutes of the match feel the most pure pro wrestling to me. The Katsuhiko's basement drop kick into Hideki's knee. So there are those elements of standard pro wrestling in this match beyond um, the beginning, which is very much a shoot style feeling match they take things to the outside you get Katsuhiko doing even like the Toshiaki Kawada stretches before he starts kicking um, Hideki and that part is just really cool to me you get a lot of just like them toying with each other so you get Katsuhiko back in the ring with Hideki um, toying with him with some really disrespectful swiping kicks you get Hideki giving him the finger which has been something that they've been doing for like a minute in the build-up to that final match for the tag belts Nishinaga-san is arguing with Katsuhiko a lot at this point, too. That happens a lot in matches where it's Nishinaga uh, refing Katsuhiko, so you get a lot of that. Um, they have that very famous point of the match where, um, and, you know, famous, but it is, you know, if you've watched the match. They sit down in front of each other, and they are cross-legged, and they start to slap each other. Um, so it's a very intense um slap exchange Katsuko wins the exchange but then he just keeps going for it but he slams a kick into his chest um he drives some nasty kicks into Hideki's chest forcing him to his feet Hideki fires back with a forearm Katsu puts Hideki on his ass with a very um painful kick then they go into the exchanges that are like very these just brutal uppercuts forearms and kick exchanges between them um Katsu lands like soccer kicks to Hideki's back he tries to do a very disrespectful pin. Nishinaga won't count it. He doesn't like to do um, the pins where someone puts their foot on someone's chest. He just refuses to count them. When Hideki is eventually able to regain control, he hits a belly-to-belly -belly suplex, which is very much a standard Hideki move. There's a lot of exchanging of showtimes in this. Katsuhiko gets his in after a lot of struggle. Hideki even attempts his own in the corner. Katsu is really defiant about this and tries to no-sell this attempt to steal his own move. The last part of the match is very frenetic. You can hear that the announcer is calling for the last several minutes of the match. They really start to ramp up their attacks against each other. It feels a lot more um, traditional pro wrestling in the last few minutes of the match, I would say, with how they're trying to outmaneuver each other. 
Hideki gets a neck breaker in. Um, he twists Katsu's neck with his feet, even like that, you know, just to be disrespectful. Katsu rolls to the outside over that. Um, Hideki kneels on his neck and manipulates his fingers and chokes him by standing on his neck again. Um, they get back in the ring and Hideki gets Katsu in a head scissors and Katsu fights to get out by rolling to the ropes. He does get it and then Hideki hits a knee drop on Katsu's neck. Um, so really trying to target his neck in the final minutes of this match. Hideki tries to pick Katsu up, but Katsu floats to his back, takes him down. Hideki rolls through and Katsu lands a kick to his chest. They both stand up at this point. Hideki gets Katsu's back and it looks like he might try a dragon suplex, but they wind up doing this complicated flip bit where Hideki ends up trying a bridge, uh, a bridging pin for a two count. Katsu laughs at him. um, So just very defiant through the last few minutes of this match. Um, Hideki rolls out and then gets back in the ring. When he gets back in, he goes for a waist lock and then brings Katsu down hard over his knee. He drags Katsu back up for a pile driver that gets him a two count and they struggle back and forth before Katsuhiko is able to send Hideki over his back and then he lands a penalty kick. Katsuhiko then starts his kicks to Hideki's chest and back, lands another big kick to his chest off the ropes for a two count. Um, Hideki gets Katsu to the mat and presses his legs into his body. Katsu struggles for the ropes while Hideki fights for control of his arm. Katsu makes it to the ropes. Um, Hideki does end up hitting the dragon suplex for a close two count. Um, after that, he gets him up again for perhaps a brain buster, but Katsu tries to roll him up for a two count. So this real back and forth. And then Hideki drags Katsu into his guard for a choke as the bell rings. The two of them need to be pulled apart by Nishinaga and Keno um, as they continue to pull at each other. Katsu and Hideki refuse to get their arms raised and chose to stare at each other um, instead Katsuhiko refused Hideki's handshake, even though Noah's um, obnoxious lower third that came up made this really hard to see, but he refused the handshake. Um, and then there was some more staring each other down and kind of looking at Hideki raising the GHD heavyweight tag belt above his head before Katsuhiko and Keno walked off together. So that's kind of how we leave them at this second 30-minute draw. Sarah, I know you watched it probably, I'm assuming, for the first time. Um, what yes. were your thoughts on um, this match? So uh, probably the things I'm going to bring up are going to give people a hint of how much I'm into just tiny specific details of the match I'm going to talk about. Um, Right off the top, um, I was struck by the gauging of distance and the setting of distance with kicks that you mentioned. I don't know how common knowledge it is that kicks can be used the same as a jab, um, especially people for people whose kicks are stronger. Also, people whose arms are shorter are constantly shorter than their opponents. This is actually a technique that I was taught in Muay Thai training um, from my Muay Thai for MMA instructor, who was just basically like, Sarah, you're shorter than everyone else. What you're going to do is you're going to use those little flicking inside and outside thigh kicks the same way someone else would establish engaged distance with a jab. So this is essentially going to be your lead arm you're keeping people at bay with assessing where they are and leading into it. Um, And for anyone who wants an introduction to that technique, this is a really fun way to get into it because um, it is technically sound, but it also sets the tone for the kind of storytelling you want in pro wrestling here. Yeah. Katsu's jujitsu was really smooth. The taking of the back was absolutely beautiful to watch. I also, as someone who is going to get into how shoot techniques are used in a way that's not going to completely alienate an uninitiated audience. I loved that there that sort of cat and mouse interplay at the beginning and the feeling out and some of the confident disrespect that was happening was, you know, everyone understands what a slap to the head is. But if you 
understand the shoot techniques behind it you're seeing that same attitude in the moves themselves so it was a really cool sort of double play of how to establish the tone of those early moments and also just anyone who has fought to time or been choked or knocked out and come back and thought they're still fighting will recognize the tension of what happens when the bell goes in this match um, just sort of a little bit of predatory, slightly excited, no, I'm still in this, I'm not done yet, you have to pull me away from you vibe, which is all like very realistic in a way that I think anyone who has not actually been in the fight might recognize, um, but is beautiful to watch even if you haven't been there. No, you're completely right. And that's a really good point. And I love that you brought up specifically how if you know what you're looking at, you can see how these things that are, are very much a, a part of real fighting can be used to convey a sense of disrespect in a professional wrestling context. That's why I love to talk about Shiozaki and how he loves to stand in the pocket because it's something that he does over and over and over again to the point where I can only ever talk about it as a character choice because mm-hmm. he does this with strikers and two of his biggest problems are people who are strikers in Katsuhiko Nakajima but also Keno and he he chooses to do this over and over and over again and Keno and Katsuhiko are people who will check distance and also try to you know harm you um by kicking you in the lead leg over and over and over again in those earlier parts of the match where they're still trying to feel each other out before you really get started and Shizaki does this thing where um, he will like very pointedly sort of like wipe his leg, his lead leg, as if to say like, this is not mm-hmm. bothering me, which is very much Shizaki is a very stubborn human being. He thinks that he can truly power through everything. That is the type of professional wrestler that he is. Like he is very much in the same vein as someone like a Kobashi in that way. Um, so that's why I can only ever perceive it as a purposeful character choice when he's dealing with strikers and Keno would be his biggest generational rival at this point. But someone like a Katsuhiko and also someone like a Keno, they're purposefully throwing those kicks at him in the pocket because they know he's going to stand in the pocket with them. Um, so that's the only way I can interpret those moments is like this this very purposeful exchange of of their characters and these these character moments between them but it is also like they throw those kicks with such disrespect to him because they know he's going to stand there and take those kicks and that is very much a part of the experience of those Noah matches but I feel like if you don't necessarily have the context or have all the language I don't Mm -hmm. know that you would necessarily connect all of those things together yeah there's a lot that can be conveyed to an uninitiated audience, but I think it's more perhaps just the little details that add up that maybe someone is going to miss if they're not in that sort of shoot fight MMA influence zone as well. Absolutely. And I guess I'll say too that my my second match that I was going to cover and then didn't have the time to cover, I really wanted to talk about Kazushi Sakuraba versus Katsuyori Shibata from New Japan's Dominion on July 5th, 2015 which I had to remind myself was actually their only singles match in professional wrestling, which is really interesting. I forgot that that was their only singles match. But I guess to explain a little bit of, you know, why I wanted to cover that, Sakuraba is a very important figure to me. I mentioned him very briefly, I think, on an episode that you were even on, Sarah. But that's why I started jujitsu for the brief period that I trained, was because I was watching a lot of Sakuraba matches and realized that actually I I could go train Brazilian jujitsu because... Katsushi Sakuraba 
existed. He's a very important figure to me in that way. But also this match is, I, uh, I really don't love to <laughs> stay up and watch things live because sleep is, is hard. Staying up for things is hard, whatever. But this was my first ever um, Perez show that I made the effort to stay like to, to sleep early and then wake up and be just like, you know, awake for, because I was actually very, very invested in the outcome of the main event, which was Okada versus AJ Styles. Um, I really wanted to know that Okada was going to be AJ Styles. And that was, you know, it was a great match actually, but this match was on that card. And this match is actually very early in that card. This match is absolutely brilliant. And it's not a very long match. I don't even think it goes, it probably goes just about 12 minutes, if not slightly less. This is an incredible nail-biting match between these two. And Sakuraba is older. You know, he's he's older at this point still. And um, these two are amazing. There is a, um, a rope break with Shibata biting the rope that was like really like a big deal at the time. If those of you listening and Sarah, you might remember uh, the match even for that moment. But if you're listening and you haven't seen this match in a while or you've never seen this match, please put this one on because I remember being awake um, for that match specifically that like like got me sitting straight up in my bed and being like, that was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. And I was still a newer fan to Perez. I would consider myself a newer fan to Perez even at that point. Um, but I remember just being like so blown away by that and just being like, this is just amazing professional wrestling, but it's that shoot style blend that I was really um, blown away by. Perhaps before I get into exactly the matches, I'll give you a little background on myself so you can understand the intense focus of what is going on here because I'm not going to give you uh, an incredible breakdown like Alicia just did. Slightly intimidated to continue now. I think perhaps the narrow focus on specific moves can be partially explained by the autism. Um, But I am also someone who had no physical skills as a child and no interest in pro wrestling until I was about 19 years old and I started watching it. Uh, But I responded to that interest in pro wrestling by becoming a professional pillow fighter for a couple of years. I did not realize the pillow fights were going to be shoot fights. Had like absolutely no understanding of how fighting worked. I did not realize that a leg drop was not a proper attack for the person doing the leg drop until someone told me to do one in a fight and I did it. And then I was like, oh, how does this benefit me? Um, It looked beautiful. (laughs) Um, So, um, and I was also a lot smaller than the other girls in the pillow fight league. So between my complete lack of killer instinct and my inability to actually understand how my body would work to fight another person, um, and all I wanted to do was perform, I eventually got into Brazilian jiu-jitsu, hoping it would make me a better pillow fighter. Of just, you know, Hoist Gracie was small, I'm small, I'll be the Hoist Gracie of pillow fighting, was my exact logic. Um, and ended up eventually giving up the pillow fight league, hoping that my gym would take me more seriously. So I did a few years of Brazilian jiu-jitsu and Muay Thai, um, never became much as a fighter, but it gave me the background to start writing about MMA, which I did professionally for a few years after that. Um, And basically from middle period of the PFL to the end of my MMA career, I stopped watching pro wrestling and I didn't think I was going to get back into it. So I had no actual flow between like choreographed fighting and shoot fighting in my life those fandoms were completely separate for me and then I started watching pro wrestling and mostly pro um, again in early 2018 and in those first few months or even the first year I really wondered like 
I love the stories of pro wrestling, but is it going to be hard for me to suspend my disbelief now that I actually understand from watching and even in my body um, what makes a quote unquote real move versus what I watched? Um, but as I got watching more, I found that I actually appreciated the storytelling of like the physical storytelling and what people can do with their bodies and why. Um, and it, it didn't bother me at all to look at a fight that had no actual, like could never happen on the street and be like, no, but it has an internal logic that makes sense to me. Um, that was fine. But the, the one new thing that I did get from my real experience is that I really enjoyed seeing shoot fight moves. Um, and even though I enjoyed striking more than I enjoyed grappling, just absolutely loved seeing the incorporation of a good Brazilian jiu-jitsu or submission fight move into a pro wrestling match. Mm -hmm. um, and I think at the start, it was just more being like, I know that, I'm cool. Um, but then I just started to appreciate the artistry of the integration and seeing how, you know, stunt fighting versus shoot fighting could come together to show some like really cool things, tell really cool stories, just add different spins on traditional pro wrestling or, you know, just mess up a card a little bit. So the two matches that I have picked today are just examples of how I now enjoy seeing shoot fight techniques in what would otherwise be considered just like pure pro wrestling. And I'm going to start with Kushida versus Hiroshi Tanahashi from January 29th, 2019. This was on a Road to the New Beginning show. Um, and this was Kushida's last match before he left for the WWE. Now, when I first learned of Kushida's MMA background, which was, let's see, he had six wins, zero losses, and two draws officially um, on his record. Uh, they were all in spelled ZST, pronounced Zest which was mostly classified as an amateur and semi-pro MMA promotion. Um, no names that I really recognized on his record, so I can't officially vouch for how serious business those matches were. But you can tell that he has a very strong knowledge once you look for it in his matches. Um, but when I first learned that he had that background and was watching him, it was more of like a fun fact that no one was supposed to expect like oh so weird can you imagine this like cute flippy high flyer actually had a serious background and I received it at that is that at first because I knew him as someone who yeah, had really great aerial moves could have a really fun match had that whole you know nerdy um special interest in back to the future going on um so it seemed like a wild departure until I started watching more carefully. And what I started to see was that he incorporates little details of shoot fighting into moves and sequences and matches that you wouldn't otherwise see them in. Um, and none of this is to like make himself look tough or prove he's legit. It's incorporated because it looks cool, because it advances the story of the match, because it augments what he wants to do as a pro wrestler. Um, so it's in service of the moves instead of in service of any air of, you know, toughness or legitimacy um, that I think coming from someone who grew up, well, not grew up, 
but was an adult watching Western wrestling was what I was expecting to see in someone with shoot backgrounds. Um, so now we will get to this match, um, which has approximately, I think, three traditional pro wrestling story templates that you will see in it. Um, first of all, it is a respectful send-off, but it is a slight territorial pissing. This is ace versus ace with the one who is staying, who is just like, we love you, we wish you well, remember, we're better and I'm better. So there's that overall arc to the match. It is also Senpai and Kohai with Tanahashi's wisdom and expertise winning over Kushida in the end. And of course, it is heavyweight versus junior. So while they might be well matched as both the aces of their division, in when you have skill versus skill, that little bit of extra weight, uh, both physical and metaphorical, um, is winning over here. So those are stories you don't traditionally find in shoot fights because anything can happen at any point. And it is not obviously a shoot fight at any point that you're watching the exchanges between Kishida and Tanahashi. But for me, there's some really, really beautiful integration of shoot fight techniques into this like inarguably classic pro wrestling match. And I mean, classic in terms of style, but it also is just classic. It's a great match. So when we get to the feeling out part, you can see a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu in this early exchange from Kushida's side. Um, Tan is doing very traditional mat wrestling and Kushida is basically doing a clinic on the positional drills you will learn when you start Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So there's a little bonus here if you know that. Um, so you can be like, oh, sweet little neon belly he got on there you know oh look is that the hint of an s mount oh he's doing the butt scoot and like oh that's a really nice technical getup. um you don't need to recognize these things just be like oh it looks cool good job um but it helps a little bit and i want to point out that these moves again are not there to show off nor are they done to give an audience say that like leonardo dicaprio pointing at the screen i know this moment it is because they become part of the story because it looks good because it all pieces well together to see that this is a you know very traditional beginning feeling out segment that just has slightly different aspects to it um so when you're watching this i just want you to pay attention to the, some very little details here um from his kishida's hip positions when he's doing this mat wrestling. Um, look at how low his hips are when he has side mount or side control over Tanahashi. Um, that is actually how you will be taught in a Brazilian jiu-jitsu class. That's to keep your weight low. So it's not leaving any room for them to like either re-guard or you know, get in a north-south position and per perhaps take your back. Um, and then even as he's moving, his hips stay low, but they'll lift just a little bit so one leg can snake under the other. He shifts the hips and then shifts them back into place. Um, also look when Tana's on his hands and knees curled up a little bit, that's called the turtle position. And the way that Kishida is sliding back and forth on his back, keeping that hip position really low. Um, I would actually recommend 
watching these first few minutes if you're first getting into jujitsu and you're looking for just like fun and different inspiration or even like a vision board for how you want your grappling to be because this is actually like really beautiful examples of just smoothly done position drills that happen to be snuck into a pro wrestling match and then we start to get into perhaps the biggest overall role that jujitsu plays in this match which is that Kushida is repeatedly targeting Tana's arm to try to soften it up for a number of positions. Um, he's also using a very basic tactic that you'll be taught as a white belt in jiu-jitsu here, which is that if you want to work the arm, you have three options. You either have a person's palm facing up and you're trying to drive their elbow forward to rip their arm out of their shoulder, which is the Americana. You're looking for the arm bar if they start to push out of that and straighten. Or you can go down and push the palm like facing away from you to try to rip it out the other side for the Kimura. So anytime that you see Kishida grabbing Tanahashi's arm and you see shifts and movements there, it's working between one of those three submissions, which is just, you know, classic white belt jujitsu that will continue right through to the black belt level. So there's that tension at place always looking for the arm and Tanahashi like always coming through with more traditional pro wrestling. Although I do want to give him a brief shout out here because although he's probably the least associated with any sort of shoot fighting style of his most famous cohorts, he does do a a decent little sweep in this match um, with a little bit of an Americana attempt thrown in, but then we get back to the pro wrestling. So some highlights I want to just point out here, we get about 20 minutes into this match and Tanahashi counters one of the armbar attempts by just powering through and standing into his Texas Cloverleaf. And then from that, like, classic Tanahashi, classic pro wrestling stance, we have Kushida hold on to the wrist with one hand. And then with the other, he sort of sweeps his arm underneath the leg so that the back of Tana's leg is about where his elbow bend would be. And then very subtly sweeps him into position so that he can attempt the armbar again, which is just an incredible single moment of a marriage between just like the most classic recognizable pro wrestling you will ever see in your life and some really cool open guard jujitsu. Like, and it's smooth. You don't need to know it's there. It just happens to be someone who had the knowledge of jujitsu could take and look at this classic pro wrestling move and be like, I have a different way to counter this now. I have something new to add to this classic story. Um, It looks so cool. It's very subtle, but I marked out when I saw it live. And that probably is the moment why I wanted to pick this fight because it's just, to me, that is like the ultimate harmony of what shoot wrestling can do for pro wrestling beyond like making it look tough or any of those things just makes it, look cool and tell the story and gives you something a little bit different from what you've seen before. And then the other detail I want to get into is about three or four minutes after that is we're heading into the home stretch of the match and we get sort of Kishida's last hope of winning this match when he's working on the arm again, trying for an armbar attempt. He's got some grip on it here and then he jumps guard to try to gain some leverage here. So what we're looking at from a jiu-jitsu perspective, if this were an actual shoot fight and you've got a hold of someone's arm and you want to be able to use your hips to drive through or hope that they will fall down, 
you are jumping and wrapping your legs around them, putting them in guard while they're still standing, just hoping to get some leverage or, you know, bring them down. This probably isn't going to be the most powerful technique. This is not one you are going to do when you feel like everything is in control, probably about 95% of the time. There are some examples of when jumping or pulling guard will work for you. Um, this is not that moment. It also was never a moment in my jujitsu career, so I recognize it well. So, Kishida, I believe it's twice jumps to try to pull this guard, and it's not enough. And Tanahashi is over able to overpower him and then win with pro wrestling. Um, but what I love about this is that anyone who has had to jump guard feels that desperation for themselves, but you don't actually need that connection to see it within the context of this match it is conveyed what a last desperation attempt it is what a moment of like clinging and trying to force this move that isn't working out perfectly for you against someone who has a little bit of an edge on you at that point um it you don't need to be initiated you don't need any background for it it is a move that shares its context so that even whether you know or not the desperation is conveyed so yeah, that is basically, to me, just this, an example of how someone who has a solid like shoot fight background doesn't have to necessarily look like what you think a shoot fighter would look like, but still makes for some really interesting creative pro wrestling. You're touching on a very important thing for me, and I think maybe it's something where because you and I both have the experience of having trained jiu-jitsu, you obviously are much more experienced in how far you took your training than me. But I think what's coming up for me is you can tell when someone tries something that really isn't meant to be there. And it can take you out of a match specifically because you know when an attempt is good versus when you wouldn't do that or when you wouldn't mm -hmm. have been trained to do that. And I immediately thought of Katsuhiko because I mentioned in speaking about him, I didn't originally like his jiu-jitsu at all. And I hated when he would fight people like Sakuraba specifically because he would, for being as talented as he is and for someone who, it's really hard, as you know, like to 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 cross train and to pick up new mm -hmm. skills and new martial arts, as especially as you get older, it's really hard to learn these things. I don't know how he managed to pick up jujitsu in the way that he did, but before that point, he would do things where you could tell he was trying to learn and trying to train, but it, he would pull things out at weird moments where it was like, but you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't actually do that because you, like uh, there was um, the arm bar that comes to mind is in his 2020 GHD heavyweight title fight against um, Shiyazaki. Of course, he goes for this arm bar um, and I believe he, he takes go down so they're probably from it's probably from standing but it's something where it's not natural and you would never do this um when you're training and you wouldn't necessarily be taught to do it because it's so awkward and shiazaki completely lets him have it which is like you know mm -hmm. good for shiazaki but that's the type of thing where like you can see he's thinking about it and he's trying mm -hmm. to figure out where to to place these moves but it's just not landing and because I know what it looks like and I've experienced it and I've trained it you would mm -hmm. never take an arm bar that way or or you know implement one that way because you're yeah. going to get the shit kicked out of you essentially <laughs> like you're going to you're going to lose position and it's going to you know be something where you where you are uh 
where you lose. So, um, so yeah, but then like going all the way into the match I just discussed from 2022, he has bridged all of those gaps. He doesn't make those mistakes anymore. He's so seamless in everything that he does. He would never make that mistake mm-hmm. again because of how far he's come in the training. But that's, I think, really important. And also like is why I don't particularly like Zack Sabre Jr.'s style of, of you know, shoot style wrestling. I don't mm-hmm. like it at all. He, to me, brings in a lot of extraneous um, moves to what he does that don't make sense to me and that take me out of the matches as a result because I don't know why you would do it that way. Um, so yeah, but I think uh, Kushida to the end is a perfect example. He's mm-hmm. um, so efficient in what he does. And I think you you demonstrated that um, perfectly. I had told you this, but I hadn't seen that match in ages. It was a match that I had seen in, in real time, um, but mm-hmm. not one I had returned to. But in returning to it, um, it was really just fun and like really cool to remember why I liked Kushida so much when I first got into wrestling I'm not really uh I like juniors but I wouldn't say that I'm like a big fan of contemporary junior wrestling but Kushida really is for the elements of of shoot style wrestling and his background and what he knows he's such a smart wrestler and like he is fun to watch for those reasons and I wouldn't have um remembered that match had you not chosen it I'm so glad to bring it up again. I will say that I am a Zack Sabre Jr. fan, but it is a choice I had to make early on that like, I will just assume his matches happen in a parallel universe. <laughs> <laughs> like, I believe that all of that stuff makes sense in the context of like the Zack Sabre Jr. verse. Um, but I have noticed that some of his other like devotees just don't realize that shit wouldn't work. Please never. I mean, you would never be able to like even start one of his submission holds in a shoot fight or a street fight. But like, please don't try any of that. Um, I have noticed like recently a little bit more of a grounded jujitsu influence in some of the stuff he's doing. So there seems to be some progression there. Um, but yeah, I would enjoy a Zack Sabre technical match the way that I would enjoy like I don't know watching some like art film that has no linear plot and is just doing stuff to prove the random technical artistry of the filmmaker beyond trying to give you a cohesive narrative or anything that that's where I am with that (laughs) (laughs) that also (laughs) if I ever like got back into pillow fighting or tried to be a professional wrestler which is not going to happen at 41 now but I would name all my moves like him. That's the other thing I admire. But um, yeah, I would definitely like I was talking to my husband about this the other day. I would name my arm bar. I can put my arm back on. You can't, which is a reference to a safety commercial um, in Canada in the 1980s. Um, it was this terrifying robot who would like jump through space, a star from Planet Danger, um, and then like jump through these rotating blades and his robot arm would fall off, but then he'd catch it. And then he'd like reseal it. And then he'd look at the camera and be like, I'm A-star from Planet Danger. I can put my arm back on. You can't. So play safe. <laughs> so this is what we grew up with. So I, yeah. <laughs> I would definitely name an arm bar that. That is like, like one of my dreams that will never be realized in life. Oh gosh, I wish you could realize that dream. That's just brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I would be very proud of it. Oh, and then also my triangle choke would be called Eat My Dust, You Insensitive Fuck. That's great, too. Which is, um, it's actually a song. It's a beautiful ballad that just happens to be called Eat My Dust, You Insensitive Fuck. But I just think, you know, if you know how a triangle choke works, you'll understand why the eat is there as well. 
A hundred percent. Layers, yeah. A hundred percent. I love that. That's good shit. Yeah, but enough about the self indulgence. Let's get into other wrestlers' self indulgence, <laughs> um, because for all the praise we put on to my last recommendation for how it integrates and speaks to an audience, I'm not sure this match is a great example of it. There is a lot of indulgence on the part of both wrestlers to have thrown this into a clap crowd era match in a tournament. But I would also argue, I mean, obviously I'm biased because I love what happens in this match and the overall like chemistry of it is that I think there is something classically DDT about having a tournament with a genuine different clash of styles that happens to have for what I think there's a greater than 0% chance is actually just two middle-aged men rolling with a determined finish. Um, they, that they maybe just went out there and were like, we do randuri or rolling, depending on how traditional your jiu-jitsu gym was. Um, let's see what happens. Because at no point is there any threat that Hiroshima, bless his soul, <laughs> will best Yukio Sakaguchi for real in a fight. So the match I'm talking about happened on December 4th, 2020. It's from the DO Grand Prix 2021 because, you know, there's some interesting age, year labeling on the DO Grand Prix. It is Hiroshima versus Yukio Sakaguchi and probably their nerdiest of all their nerdy exchanges. Um, just a tiny bit of background about Yukio Sakaguchi to begin with. Um, he has a 5-7 win-loss record, um, mostly in Pancras. There's one K1 fight. Um, his like shoot career was from about 2007 to 2013. So he will never go down in the history books as the greatest MMA fighter ever. He is, however, a genius at the marriage of MMA and pro wrestling because he has a mind for how to execute all of these moves smoothly when he doesn't have to worry about being like knocked out for real or any or choked out for real or any of that stuff um he has he's able to execute it and he has the instincts i think of knowing what in jujitsu and any striking art looks fucking cool um which i think any of anyone who like gets into martial arts and starts training has that little bit of them inside you know you see a flying triangle, you see a flying arm bar, you see a beautifully executed roundhouse kick, and you're like, oh my god, I need to do that. Um, he has that sort of energy of like, that looks great, I bet it'll translate well, and he's able to just throw it into the match, and he has this persona of being like this absolute super killer, even at 50, but he always looks so cool, except for when he's collapsing into a fit of giggles, but I would argue that's actually really representative of shoot fight culture as well. Um, unless you're at like the most serious business humorless, I think I'm going to fight in the UFC gym ever when you get into martial arts, especially like sort of the BJJ grounded, either strictly a BJJ gym or a BJJ gym that's trying to cater to a mix of martial arts that they will eventually put in an MMA banner. Um you are not just going to get, like, lunkheads who can punch well. You are going to get, like, some math professor with G.I. Joe tattoos who is, like, incredible at jiu-jitsu. And this is, like, his one outlet in life. You're going to get 
some girl who showed up for self-defense classes five years ago and turned into like the most terrifying person on the mats ever. Um, you're going to get people from arts, sciences, um, pretty much just you will meet some of the worst people you've ever met in your life at a martial arts gym and you'll meet some of the best and you will inarguably meet some of just the weirdest. And so it makes perfect sense to me. And actually, I think it is maybe the most perfect representation of a mixed martial arts person in wrestling that Sakaguchi would find himself in DDT and just piss himself laughing to the point of not being an effective fighter anymore if someone is wearing pantyhose on their heads because it's the funniest thing he's ever seen. That is there's a Yukio Sakaguchi in I think every good gym <laughs> in the world. Just your weird uncle who could probably kill you but might giggle instead. And I think maybe because that is a common part of like martial arts culture and MMA culture is why you will see a lot of like mixed martial artists and shoot fighters be attracted to DDT for some reason. I mean, look at how happy Shinya Aoki is there. He just wants to get his little bubble butt out and show it to the world and be in like bra and panties matches and be super weird because like that, that, that is how some fighters are. Or some fighters are like obsessed with dinosaurs. It's like George St. Pierre. Um, fighters can be weirdos. And that representation is very, very strong in DDT. Oh wait, there's one thing I want to get to back in the looking cool phase because I did talk about it mostly in the context of being able to translate it to wrestling. Um, but I would say that making something look cool and impressive is a genuine tactic for MMA as well. Um, and this is especially true in promotions that are dealing with judges who are not specifically MMA judges. Um, which is probably most of them. The UFC has struggled with this for years as well. Uh, because in its current form, it is a relatively new sport. And yes, obviously the traditions of it date back to Greco-Roman times. Um, but MMA as it is defined now is still new. Um, and even the people who participate in it and officiate it aren't necessarily experts yet. So if you are fighting somewhere, judges who are not completely experienced yet, and your fight goes to a decision, there is going to be an element of looking better than your opponent that is going to factor into a lot of decisions about whether or not you won a round. Um, if you watch my aforementioned dinosaur nerd, George St. Pierre's like battle fights where he's doing the lay and pray and he is winning by decision five rounds into a championship match just like watch the last 30 seconds of each round you'll quite often see like a beautiful superman punch or just some like flashy little bit of jujitsu or karate or muay thai um that's there to try to do something obviously but it's also there to leave the impression at the end of each round look how good i am look how cool i am I am owning this guy. Um, so yeah, it's not entirely a useless skill that Sakaguchi picked up to look fucking cool. It just happens to be that his real gift in life is translating that to an MMA fight. Now, I have picked one of the Hiroshima matches because their dynamic together is very unique to DDT. Um, and it's beautiful because it symbols, symbolizes another 
archetype that I really love in martial arts and training from the re- from my real life is that sometimes you have a guy who just loves jujitsu or just like loves martial arts and maybe learned a lot of it from YouTube and he's enthusiastic and he's got an athletic background but he's gonna try a lot of stuff that he doesn't necessarily have the fundamentals for and it might work and it might not now there is another guy like that in DDT and it's Mao. However, Mao is another type of guy you will find in the gym, which is the person who, you know, shows up, has white belt fundamentals, tries some brown belt shit and does it right and just infuriates you to no end. Um, Another thing I wanted to recommend that I'll bring up now is in the end of like Muscle Hiragana 3, which was a show that was done during the pandemic and is mostly just this like super meta comedy show with singing and dancing. They had a small shoot grappling tournament at the end. Um, And a lot of them have some impressive skills. Like even people you might not expect, like Kazuki Hirata, who like gets to a draw. He's probably the least impressive of the grapplers, but still shows a fundamental understanding of open guard. And then Mao shows up and he does a fucking cartwheel guard pass. That is not something that someone of Mao's background should be able to do, but it's nice. It's not perfect, but it's really good. And it's, slightly infuriating also if you get Hirata and Mao together you are getting like the we watched an hour of capoeira on youtube party hour for a while they will do all sorts of nonsense things that are cool and fun um and they will usually end in a stalemate they actually tried some youtube jujitsu in the match that they just put on a uh, on wrestle universe today so i believe it's going to be the october 7th main event in the very first few minutes you can watch Yo, galaxy brain YouTube jujitsu between the two of them. Now, Harashima, whether it's because of age or just his skill set, he will try the like galaxy brain brown belt stuff ahead of his time. He is unlikely to execute it, um, especially against Yukio Sakaguchi. So, what we have here is Harashima basically being like having the energy of a youngest kid at a family gathering who is just happy to play with the big kids, just happy to be there. I'm going to try some stuff with Yukio Sakaguchi, whose overall energy in DDT is that of the friendly, but still deadly black belt instructor who is rolling with white belts to like, just give them enough of a chance so they can try some shit before they shut you down. Um, So it's a little bit cat and mouse, a little bit encouraging and you will see this basically anytime he matches up with anyone who shows interest in grappling. Um, it'll mostly be Hiroshima. Um, it'll be Mao a little bit. Yuki Ueno tries some of it. Or you get the other version, which is that with Tetsuya Endo, Endo has just decided to be absolutely terrified of all grappling moves, um, which is clearly a character choice. If you go back to about 2017, you'll, show, you'll see that there's a little bit of fundamental understanding of mat wrestling that is no longer in his moveset. Um, but what you will get is something you actually will see in fight gyms, which is him just being super fucking strong and powering out of a move. Um, it's not always pretty, but it can be fun too. Now, other Hiroshima and Yukio Sakaguchi exchanges will bring a little bit of their striking knowledge into it. Primarily done when they want to stand and trade and just kick each other with really heavy Muay Thai style, like swinging the leg from the hip like a stick, uh, roundhouse kicks to each other's chests, which 
in addition to just being something they clearly enjoy, I think is just like how they affirm that they're alive and they're, you know, almost collectively a hundred at this point, but they can kick the shit out of each other and survive and it looks cool and tough. So it's this tit kicking celebration of life. That exchange is not going to be in this fight because it is basically a purely indulgent grappling fight. But it does have, I hope, just like enough that if you don't care about jujitsu, but you're given little pointers to look at, you might see it through new eyes. Um, this match has about a 4.6 rating on cage match, which I know isn't particularly damning because I rarely agree with cage match anyway. But some of the criticisms of it, I felt were a little off base simply because, you know, they weren't thinking in jujitsu terms at all. They just, someone actually said it was trying to be a Zack Sabre Jr. fight. It was not. Oh my. <laughs> I know. So the overall story to this match is very simple. And it's basically that, you know, affectionately, Hiroshima is going to try his YouTube shit. And Sakaguchi is going to let him go with it for a while. And then it's going to be like, fun time's over. We're going back to side control. So he'll just escape whatever Hiroshima put him in that he very patiently waited out. Put Hiroshima on his back, go to his side, hips way down, basically, like I said, just watch for Kishida for. And so it's just that exchange. You can try this. Okay, fun is over. Back to side control. You can try this. Okay, now we're going back to side control. And the only reason that that like, tension has to mount, beyond the fact that they have to finish this fight, is that Hiroshima does something that is not smart jujitsu. For the rest of it, it was a little bit galaxy brain, but there was a logic to it. But basically, Sakaguchi is going to just put him into an ankle lock. And then while Hir Hiroshima is fighting off the ankle lock, he tries a retaliatory heel hook. Now, if you are fighting someone who doesn't really know what they're doing, you might be able to get away with that. But he's fighting Yukio Sakaguchi, who retaliates with a heel hook of his own and then shuts the match down, which I'll get to the rest of because there are some little details I want to talk about here. The first thing to watch off the bat is that when they're sizing each other up, Sakaguchi does some like beautiful level changes. So he's up and down and he's assessing. These are effective in a shoot fight, but I think they also are just like a little bit of a different way to convey that early on assessing that will happen in any pro wrestling match just to change it up a little bit looks cool looks makes him look sort of like the cat like killer that he is going to be in this episode that he is sizing someone up and waiting for them to just give him that moment so there's a cool arm bar attempt by Hiroshima which is followed by just like the easiest possible escape and guard pass by Sakaguchi so we're establishing here, like, oh, you might have some vision here. You've got some skill, but it's not enough. Look how easily I can shut this down. And then, so it's about one hour and 46 minutes into the show, if you want to look for the actual timestamp for this. I just want you to pay attention to Sakaguchi as he switches his hips inside control. Um, he actually switches to their side, I believe. Smiles. Just this, like, absolutely, like, Cheshire Cat killer smile. Because this is fun to him. This is just 
him sparring and showing what he can do with someone who is fun just to give him enough of a challenge that he can, you know, make it all end whenever he wants. So after that smile, we get a head arm choke set up that happens in seconds. It is smooth. It is beautiful. It is, you know, done as much to get Hiroshima into a choke as to sort of like psychologically like curatorial kiss on this match. And about two minutes after we get that evil smile, Hiroshima sets up a triangle choke. It's quite weak. And then Sakaguchi postures out of it. So just like fundamental, like earn your first stripe jujitsu. If you're in a triangle choke, the first thing you're going to choose is sit up and just like have rod straight posture to sort of break that leg, which he does. Um, Hiroshima gets to play around a bit more. He tries a normal plata attempt. I think there's a flirtation with setting up a go-go plata there, which, um, I mean, I understand there are so many times that I should have been learning fundamentals in jujitsu rolling where I tried a go-go plata instead. It's really cool and I always wanted to try it. So again, I get that energy. It is also classic jujitsu to want to do that. But immediately after that, we're back to side control. Um, there's a really, really smooth transition from side control to neon belly right into mount from Sakaguchi. Once Hiroshima escapes that, we have a little bit of a butt skate segment. And for a match that I feel in general doesn't try that hard to convey a lot of what's happening to an uninitiated audience, I think this is actually really effective. Like the butt scoot position, if you don't know what it is, looks silly. Um, this is something you probably need a little bit of an education to understand. Um, in one of last one of Jushin Thunder Liger's last matches, I wish I could remember what it is. It might have been against Suzuki. Um, there, he does a bit of butt scooting, and it looks great if you know what it is. And I just wish that anyone on English commentary had had enough of a background to provide it in that moment, because I think with one or two lines, it could have set the scene a lot better for what was a cool moment in the match that was otherwise misunderstood. But here, I think from the context, you actually could get it across to an audience <clears throat> because you see Hiroshima's hesitation to get closer to Sakaguchi's legs because he's afraid of either, you know, an up kick or he's afraid of getting put into guard or even swept here. Um, and then you also see that anytime he does try to get closer, Sakaguchi can shut it down. So with just, a very few little movements, this otherwise inaccessible jujitsu and MMA move is successfully translated to a pro wrestling audience. Whether or not you actually know the technique behind it, you're like, oh, this is a bad man who's so dangerous, he's dangerous on his ass, which is a bit an effective bit of storytelling. And then finally, we get into that closing sequence. So I talked about the calf lock, which is just a traditional sort of easy leg lock that you can get into uh, it's one of the first things you'll probably learn depending on the style of jiu-jitsu you're learning it's also a safe one for people who don't have a lot of history with leg submissions to do because the worst that's going to happen is you're going to have like a really nasty calf cramp the next day the move that Hiroshima tries is a little bit more advanced and not only is he not in a good position for it it's less of a like friendly play around move um, because a heel hook can basically just completely mess up your tibia and fibula and pop your kneecap off it can be a career ending injury um, 
it was probably one of the most useful days of my entire jujitsu career when I had uh, another person take me aside and be like, okay, so we're about to fight a gym that does a lot more heel hooks than we do. You need to know what it feels like. So you need to know when to tap. So it is in real life and in the context of this match's storytelling, quite an escalation to go from a friendly ankle lock to like, fuck you, I'm trying a heel hook. Which is why Sakaguchi responds immediately with a heel hook of his own to be like, oh, I'm actually in position to do this. Here's how you do it. Here's what it feels like. Now let's get up because I'm not going to rip your leg off, but you know that I could. And then we get just a really little slick takedown from Sakaguchi. And then he takes the back and sets up a body triangle. So... This is how you're going to trap someone from the back if the hooks aren't enough. So the first way that you would want to take someone from the back is that you sort of take your feet and spread, put them in between their legs just so you can hold on. He actually brings one leg under his knee. So he actually crosses Hiroshima in the triangle between his legs here. And he takes the time to adjust it, which is really effective real life jujitsu for basically a technically perfect rear naked choke that not in real life but in the story they're conveying here would knock Hiroshima out within seconds because it is actually cutting the blood flow off to your brain so you would pass out now in the end Hiroshima having been bested gets up and he's smiling um one of the complaints I saw in cage match about this was that Hiroshima was not selling like being choked out taken seriously he like has to laugh everything off but if you know his energy is that he is just happy to be included, he was thrilled to even get to the point where he had to be choked out to, to almost the point of passing out. Like, if you are, say, against a friendly rival or not against your worst enemy ever and you're training jujitsu, or even if you're in a tournament competition and you have sort of that level of physical and intellectual engagement in what you're doing and then someone bests you, there's actually a rush to it. Like, unless you are the most bitter, unwilling to learn fighter ever, there's an excitement like, oh, I hung as long as I did. Oh, I learned something. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I survived getting choked out. Even. Like, it, it's fun and it's satisfying. And I think that spirit is there in the character and the real man of Hiroshima for just like getting to do this fight at all. Um, so yeah, that was all beautiful. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring up the, bo the body triangle is because you can also see once you watch enough Yukio Sakaguchi matches, when he is letting his opponents play around versus when he's taking over. And a lot of that has to do with how much room he is allowing them in side control and in back mount. Um, so usually when he takes the back, in jujitsu-influenced jiu exchanges in basically any EDT match, he will rarely put his hooks in unless he's controlling that moment of the match um, from a storytelling perspective. So anytime you don't see that like threading, he is setting up something cool where someone can flip out of a move and do something more like either YouTube jujitsu or pro wrestling looking. Um, so when you see that body triangle slap on, that's when he's shutting things down in the story. Um, and also anytime you see his hips up in either mount or guard or side control, that's when he is allowing room 
for whoever he's working with to try something in exchange. So um, he's taking just like basic techniques and just leaving enough room in them for just like improvisation and creative play with his opponents. Um, and there's some beautiful stuff there. Not all of it is going to be as nerdy and as inaccessible, but like great as this match. Um, but there will be details of it in pretty much everything he does. And um, yeah, I am absolutely obsessed with how he has integrated his shoot fight techniques into pro wrestling and just into DDT. <laughs> he is tremendous and easily was a bigger draw to me when I got into DDT after mm-hmm. um, Hiroshima, who was really like my my link into DDT. But I'm just like, I'm stuck on this cage match commenter. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm like trying to unpack this as I listen to you um, and, and how one can, I guess for this person, perhaps they're not as, perhaps they don't know as much about the relationship between the two of them, the culture of, ddt but i also think about how you know immediately thought of hiroshima versus junakiyama from the first um cyber fight fest right and mm-hmm. um hiroshima gets choked out there and he comes to very ugly and mm-hmm. it's actually very hard to watch in the yeah. storytelling of that moment hiroshima is actually very very good at using his reactions to losses or to whatever to demonstrate these important character beats and moments in story i'm just like kind of blown away by that commentary because like we see him react very ugly to yeah um losses and like i don't know maybe that person just isn't familiar with his work but like, like this is not, not a match where like- i would where I would make that comment, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. And it he's makes not sense a wrestler context. who I would ever think of as taking the piss. Like he in many ways embodies DDT, but one of them is that his love of pro wrestling and willingness to sell it and be part of the story um is absolutely sincere. There's there's no like detached irony there or anything no. of that nature. And he's not one to just like put himself over or anything, exemplified by the fact that he's smiling here because he's fucking thrilled to have been through that moment and it's sakaguchi it's different when it's you know tetsuya endo and it's different when it's junakiyama (laughs) there's different dynamics between different wrestlers yeah that's fascinating i wanted to ask you also why you felt that someone like a yukio sakaguchi or like a katsuyo shibata shibata was another guy who has that background he's a mixed martial artist right he took Mm -hmm. actual fights he was an actual fighter but he didn't have a great record. Like he was never a guy that was going to pull away and and have this very successful MMA career. But he, like Sakaguchi, translates that background so seamlessly and perfectly into the storytelling and the fabric of professional wrestling. Why do you think some of those guys tend to not do so well? If you had any insight into that, why do you think they don't do well in their you know shoot careers, but they tend to do so well in their actual pro wrestling careers? I think perhaps, um, I mean, I've obviously neither man is an example of not having any killer instinct at all. Um, but there can be a difference between people who are willing to go in that moment and get 100% hit all of the time against someone they're working literally against. I don't think works for everyone. I think reaction time can be a bit big part of it. Like I know that there's a lot of 
on the ball thinking and reaction in reaction involved in pro wrestling as well. But you are most of the time working with someone who is still a collaborator in some sense. Even if your work is often opposed to each other, there is um, a level of like mutual working towards something. So I think if you cannot turn it off and be like an actual killer in the ring or cage or on the mat, um, this is a way to take skills that you have that you are not able to translate into that kill shot and make it something really beautiful and still meaningful and important and tough. Um, and also, if you're just not someone who can time things right to knock someone out, that doesn't mean that you can't, you know, have the pattern and technique and the timing to make it look like you could knock someone out in something a little more structured. Um, so yeah, those are two reasons that are probably influenced by the fact that I I was okay at technique um, and less okay at spar. Like, there was no way I was ever going to be a professional fighter. Um, but I think if I'd had the opportunity to take those skills back into wrestling, I, not on their level, but I think I could have made something cool out of it, which is why I have that perspective of, you know, how the techniques translate without having to actually beat someone up for real, only partially beat them up in a collaborative effort. <laughs> I also struggled in jujitsu for a set in a sense, and there's a myriad of reasons why. I think we actually touched on some of those reasons why in the episode where I think you and Dana were on because it can be very difficult to be in these male-dominated gyms without a lot of support for one. Yeah. But I think one of my biggest issues with jujitsu in general is that I can intellectualize everything that I'm being taught. I understand <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the technique. I get it. I can talk myself through it. I understand it when it's being shown to me. But in the moment when it's actually happening, when we're in a round of randori, that's where I had trouble sometimes connecting pieces or I would do A to B, but then have trouble getting to C to D. That just wasn't where um, I was going <laughs> necessarily. Yes. I think if I had stuck with it longer and had a, a better and, and safer environments to train in and felt more supported, I would have perhaps gotten better over time. But that was always my thing. Like I, I can, I can intellectualize all of it. Like I think I can see a lot of it. I can recognize yes. a lot of it. But I could not really connect the pieces in in live time in a way that like my reaction time was just different than yes, um, you know, than I would have wanted it to be. I think. I also like I would get so into my head because to me, like winning and losing, winning very rarely happened for me in gym class because I sucked at it. And I had just like all this burden of years of humiliation in gym class that would come to me every time I like didn't want to even lose a sparring session, let alone a tournament match. Whereas if I could have taken those techniques and just put on a show, I think I would have felt super cool about it because, you know, if you lose in pro wrestling, well, I guess it all depends on your attitude. I would never have cared if I had been like someone who lost all her fights in a choreographed predetermined pillow fight league. But for some reason, like losing real pillow fights um, absolutely made me lose my mind with like gym trauma and humiliation and trying to prove myself. Yeah. So I would uh, quite often psych myself out and lose before I ever fought. That's just not where my brain was. Totally. And I think like for me, I 
the, some of the, my better memories were like on the Saturday mornings where we would do like, uh, Saturday morning was like a big, big general class of like mixed, okay. mixed belt levels. Um, my, my first school that I really learned the most at was, um, was very small initially. And we would have like the big all belts class in the main room. Sometimes some like, um, like professors from other schools would come in and there'd be some like traveling black belts that would come in usually on the Saturday morning classes. So it was always good just to be in there. And then if we had enough women, we would go into the second room when Randori would begin. And then all the women would just go do Randori in the second room, which is always a really Mm -hmm. good Saturday for us. So some of my better memories are doing Randori with the women in the next room. Cause that's where I felt like I could actually, learn more and have yeah. better rounds of randori if i was doing like a general white belts class um during the week and such like i would often just leave after the yeah. class and not do randori because there were so many weird experiences where mm-hmm. um, like you have to deal with like men not wanting to train with you because you're not yes. a man um you have to deal with like the men who go really really hard on you because mm-hmm. they don't want to lose to a woman yeah. um and just when you have enough of those experiences you just yeah. don't want to stay for randori but oh, unfortunately no. randori is where you learn like you have to yeah. learn by doing it over and over again in live training scenarios it's not just being able to show up to class and learn the drills over and over yeah. again you have to be able to apply and i think I just there's some arts where you can get by on technique or like I mean obviously you can't fight on technique although you're gonna have to spar but like you can barely learn a jujitsu move without having to apply it almost immediately um Mm -hmm. uh, the very first instructor I ever had just like looked at me and went like okay Sarah you're gonna stand on the shore and wave your hands above your air but you're never gonna like wave your hands above your head but you're never gonna learn how to swim unless you get in the water so that's how I was introduced to my very first sparring session my first role um yeah so it is just there's a huge push and pull to it um but there does have to be a level of trust there which is why it's great to like work with a black belt almost like a yukio sakaguchi jiu-jitsu demonstration in ddt um or to have people who are your size or don't have hang-ups about people your size um because it's not just that guys will go too hard if they're afraid to like train with a woman or lose to a woman even in rolling where it it doesn't matter if you lose because it's not a match it's literally just like training with other people to elevate both of you um it gets into like this absolute like dying animal panic that is Mm -hmm. horrible to try to work with and not something you would actually experience in an amateur or professional fight or tournament of any kind because you'd be working with you know fucking grown-ups right who are there in your weight class and ready to compete and treat you with uh, in theory at least a degree of respect that's just not going to be there if you get like new guys off the street who are trying to roll with you so yeah um finding space to roll in jiu-jitsu is hard um I assume it's a little better now but like I had maybe if I was lucky three women to roll with on my average training session in the 2000s, mid 2000s to late 2000s. Um, there were occasionally benefits to that too. Um, some of my favorite memories of uh, Muay Thai were just that we had um, two instructors from uh, the shoot box school. Mm. So Maurizio Vea and Andre Gita. Um, and Maurizio stayed in Toronto, but Gita was there for like, I don't know, a couple of months at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and because they were trying to reach out to women more, there were three women's only classes a week that were just an hour 
of Muay Thai and Muay Thai for MMA. And girls never wanted to come in on Friday night, but they had like from Fridays six to seven was just women's Muay Thai. And so my one friend Haja and I were just like, wait a minute, this is basically like private training. We don't have social lives. We're just going to go like train with Dita for an hour. So yeah, we got to like learn a lot of like high-end, almost one-on-one professional Muay Thai training from you know, under that shoebox style that gave us like Vanderlei Silva, um, Shogun Hua. Um, and in fact, under Dita, who was apparently the mastermind behind the technique that eventually allowed Shogun Hua to eventually defeat Leota Machida, who <laughs> had built up this entire like mystique that I think broke the brains of everyone from like the most basic UFC fan to other fighters and coaches that his karate was so elusive and it was always elusive on the tail of the tape that word got taught to so many lunkhead mma fans just from leota machida's reign that it's like everyone bought into the mythology of like having to do 40 chess to get around his stance and his elusive nature um until dita just took like very very basic flat footed advancing MMA and was like what if we went at him in a straight line that's what like completely destroyed the Machida myth um and yeah it's actually just even if you don't want to fight a really fun way to like learn patterns and striking and just like how to move forward and how to combine different kicks and you know when to kick and draw your leg back versus when to kick and plant it so that you can actually switch stances and go from there um but that's like a lo- another level of nerd um of decades separated from me actually doing it but yeah for the most part it it was very very hard to be a woman training in the 2000s and 2010s and maybe still now yeah (laughs) (laughs) no that was amazing perspective I love hearing about your experiences because you've had so many incredible ones but we all I think share that common bond of like how difficult some of this can be but that's also not to dissuade people especially people that are not cis men who are listening to this podcast from trying to train like now that I've had some perspective and years away from jujitsu um I would love to find a time in my life to get back into it or to try something new it really is something that can just be so thrilling and fulfilling when you're in it if you can find the right supportive environment and I do think Sarah's point things are getting better all the time. So yeah, don't, don't not do it just because we're talking about some of the more um, troublesome things that can come with it. And also don't like not do it if you don't think you're going to be good at the competition end. Because I mean, if you get into a gym, they're going to get really enthusiastic and they're going to talk you into a competition. It's almost unavoidable. But keep in mind that it can be for just like self-defense or feeling more confident or just something to do with your time. Or just to make you a more nerdy pro wrestling watcher like us. Like, these are all things that can... Exactly. Sometimes it's cool just to watch something and know the language for it, which is pretty much what we've demonstrated. Any closing thoughts, Sarah? Is there anything else that you want to recommend to folks beyond um, the wonderful matches that you chose? Um, Well, I want to take one more pass at... I already did plug it. But um, Muscle Hiragana 3, which I think is from 2021. Not only for the grappling itself, because I think it's super cool to see how many like DDT wrestlers have more comprehensive backgrounds than I think most people would give them credit for. 
um, that even if it's not necessarily the highest end submission nogi jujitsu wrestling ever, there is a sound understanding of technique throughout. Except for like Mao, who apparently has no background and is just great at it because it's not fair. <laughs> but I also like how it is integrated into probably one of the most separated from wrestling um, brands within DDT, which proves what I am always rambling on about is just like how different DDT's influences are. So you've got this show that is about the like embodiment of pro wrestling finishers who are gods. So there's five of them and they're all like embodied roll-ups or embodied arm bars or whatever. Um, and they sing and they dance and they fight the spirits of broken folding chairs that died in wrestling matches. And so it's like this whole meta comic book thing. There's usually, you know, multiple layers going on because it's written by Muscle Sakai Super Assassin Dango Machine. Um, probably what most people would get like up in arms about not being real pro wrestling and then it turns around and has one of the most real fight exchanges you will see in the past few years of wrestling Um, because they, they really can do it all and there is absolutely fundamental sound knowledge behind all of those little dance moves too <laughs> um, but it's, it's a really cool show and it's a really cool way to just see these talents show off how comprehensive their talent and backgrounds are 100 and, good shout and you'll see mal's fucking cartwheel card pass he's unbelievable <laughs> nothing he does makes any sense which you like perfectly illustrated before but fuck him <laughs> for being so effortlessly talented in ways that don't make any sense yeah it's truly wild to me um and i mean it is i think represented well in his character that you'll watch a wrestling match and be like that shouldn't work but even if you know what he's actually doing that is a shoot fight technique that shouldn't either like he's so endearing he is just jackass the wrestling character just fully embodied (laughs) absolutely gosh except he the only butter beans (laughs) <laughs> no even <laughs> i just rewatched that the other day that was killing me holy shit what a scene yeah <laughs> oh man i guess the only thing i'll say is that watch more uh pro wrestling noah that's like a weird plug but i do think that the things that i love about pro wrestling noah like i just don't hear them uh, discussed in the same ways that I want to discuss them. So um, I hope that people will just look for some of these little details. Um, I do think that like Shiyazaki is a particularly good study in what makes a pro wrestling Noah trained wrestler. Um, he is a Noah born wrestler. He's a complete and total product of their dojo. Um, and I think that those little details are what makes Noah such an interesting dojo system and i just think that the way that they train their wrestlers i've said this before i've been very outspoken um about it i think especially recently for some reason but i do think that even to this day noah trained wrestlers are the best trained wrestlers in the world um i will stand 10 toes down on that but i think a lot of it is in the the history and as it relates to you know giant baba's philosophies and then how they've kind of um you know gone on since that since then rather in the uh the different elements of, of mixed martial arts and who they have training people um so yeah just 
watch some pro wrestling, Noah, see how people uh, react in the ring and the different styles they bring. And also the people that don't have those backgrounds uh, that they bring to Noah. It's, I think it's all really, really fascinating for um, what makes especially contemporary pro wrestling Noah. So yeah, that's where we're at. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me and for um, helping me with this episode. It's been a total blast. Can you plug yourself for everybody at home just one more time? Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm so glad we did this. Um, thank you for asking me. Um, I, it's been a blast for me as well. Um, yeah, so I am Fodder Figure, F-O-D-D-E-R Figure um, on Twitter, Instagram. Oh, and also Blue Sky. So I guess that's going to be my brand everywhere. Um, my books are basically wherever you can find books online. Probably not so much in stores, but yeah, please look up. I overcame my autism and all I got was this lousy anxiety disorder featuring a very important footnote about the wisdom of Daisuke Sasaki and work it out a mood boosting exercise guide for people who just want to lie down, who talks about the training philosophies of Tetsuya Naito and also shouts out the strength and muscular superiority of Tetsuya Endo and Neo Watanabe. And if you didn't need more reasons to buy Sarah's book, there there you go. That should be all the reasons to buy Sarah's books, which are tremendous. So please go and support Sarah by buying her work. You can follow me, Alicia, at Sharanui Kai with two eyes on Twitter and I guess Blue Sky. I guess we're also all plugging Blue Sky now. So yeah, you can do that there. You can always find me and Rachel at Kickout299. We're also over on Instagram. Uh, by the same name. If you enjoy our content, please leave us a five-star review on Spotify or your preferred podcast listening platform of choice. We are at 56 five-star reviews right now on Spotify, which is sort of mind-blowing. I know that we mention this all the time, but there is nothing crazier than to have a podcast with that many five-star reviews. Never something I thought we would have. So thank you very much for those of you who have been doing that. It really does mean a lot to us and it really helps us as we're sort of guiding our episode. So if you haven't done that yet, please do so. Helps us fight the algorithm. And um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Thank, Sarah, thank you again for joining me and I will be back soon. I think in about two weeks or so with Dr. Jonathan Foy and Lewis, we'll be talking about Katsuhiko Nakajima's departure from pro wrestling Noah. <laughs>